this is going to be Lesson 184B, Thursday Dark to Sunday Dawn. So, let's bow our heads and ask God's blessing on our time together and get right into it, all right? Father, we do again approach your throne of grace so thankfully that we have that opportunity to do, to come boldly before you because of the Lord Jesus Christ who has made access into your very presence for those of us who have put our faith in you. We thank you that we can praise you and worship you and love you and study all about you through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the truth of of the resurrection. Thank you for this resurrection season when we can remind people about the fact that the Lord Jesus defeated sin and the wages of sin, death. He did bodily rise from his tomb. And if he be not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and our faith also is in vain. We might as well all go home. But the fact is that he did raise, and we are not yet in our sins if we have been born again and trusted what he did for us in the atonement. Lord, we love you. We do ask that you would be lifted up this morning, that your Holy Spirit would have his will and way in this rather difficult lesson. We just pray that we'd have attentive ears, that there would not be any spirit in in this room that would um, hinder your Holy Spirit from doing his work. We want to glorify you, and um, that is our sole purpose for being here, is to glorify you. For we pray in your name. Amen. We're going to be talking about Friday and Saturday once again this morning. Well, why, and you'll understand why as I get into the lesson. But while the Jewish community was observing now Friday, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a high day Sabbath, the first day of Unleavened Bread was the 15th of Nisan. And it went on, that feast went on for a week. It concluded at the 21st on the 21st of Nisan. So the community is observing this first day, Friday, according to our Thursday crucifixion scenario. And while they're celebrating the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, by being very quiet and staying at home, because it was a Sabbath and there were strict rules about what they could do and what they couldn't do, and they couldn't do very much at all. But the religious rulers, we learned, early Friday morning, even though it was a Sabbath, they broke their own Sabbath rules, and they made arrangements with Pontius Pilate to secure and to seal and to guard the Lord's tomb. That is all we know from the scripture about events, earthly events, on Friday. And we know nothing at all, absolutely nothing at all from the scripture about earthly events on Saturday. We only know that there were strict scruples about what the Jewish people could and could not do during those two back-to-back Sabbaths. Friday was a high-day Sabbath. Saturday was a regular weekly Sabbath. Now, had you ever before thought about the fact that in God's providence, the two full days when the bodily temple of his dear son lay covered in beautiful white linen strips, heavily laden with aromatic spices, that the entire Jewish community was in a state of respectful quiet and rest? Do you think God didn't orchestrate that? The city would have been unusually quiet, and there were many people in the city. According to the number of lambs slain, Josephus said some two million people were in the city. And, but it was quiet because there were two Sabbaths back to get back. And I think that this actually gives greater evidence for a Thursday crucifixion. Because that would be the only day of the week that he could be crucified and you would have two back to back Sabbaths. For example, I totally reject the Friday, the traditional Friday crucifixion, because then he cannot literally be in the grave for three days and three nights. You can't get three nights to save your soul, as I've said before. You can maybe get the three days, but not the three nights. But the other um, position people take is a Wednesday crucifixion. I don't know of anybody that takes a Monday or a Tuesday, 
but there are some that say Wednesday. But if you had a Wednesday crucifixion, then the next day, Thursday, would have been the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That would have been a Sabbath. But then you would have had Friday, which would have been a regular day. You see, a regular day, and people could come and go, and there would be all kinds of people moving around and buying things, and two million people. And I don't believe that that would show the respect for the Lord's body as he's quietly at rest in the tomb, or at least his body is, that you would get. Of course, then Saturday would be a regular Sabbath. By the way, if you have a Wednesday crucifixion, his resurrection on Sunday is not the third day. You count. It's the fourth day. And if you have a Wednesday crucifixion, you got to back up and make Palm Sunday, Palm Saturday. So there are definite problems also with a Wednesday crucifixion. But I think a Thursday crucifixion really makes sense. Because as we study and see God's providence, how he's orchestrating everything, does not that make sense that he would have all the people quiet, respectfully quiet, while his son is laying in his tomb? So God saw to it that the multitudes of the Jewish people assembled from all over the world for the Passover celebration and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were respectfully quiet while his son's body slept. And also think about this. This would also explain why the Lord's disciples did not head back to Galilee. You see, two back-to-back Sabbaths kept them in Jerusalem. Why? Well, because travel was strictly forbidden on the Sabbath. And they would like to have gotten out of Jerusalem. They were scared. We learn later on in John chapter 20, verse 9, that they were fearful of the Jews. They were afraid for their own lives. And why, therefore, would they not have hightailed it out of Jerusalem uh, if they could have, if it wasn't a Sabbath, two Sabbaths in a row, they would have been caught right away if they were trying to travel on the Sabbath day. That was that would be considered breaking the Sabbath, and they would be punished for that. I don't know how, but they would have been. So again, if you had a Wednesday crucifixion, Thursday they couldn't have traveled, but they could have traveled on Friday, couldn't they, and gotten out of there. But two back-to-back Sabbaths kept them in Jerusalem. Do you think they were staying in Jerusalem waiting for Sunday for the resurrection? No, we know they weren't. They were not expecting a resurrection on Sunday. So that is not what kept them there. I believe God worked it out to keep them in the city by having two Saturday, two Sabbaths in a row. Excuse me. And we do know that um, there were some disciples that as soon as it was Sunday, now Sunday wasn't their Sabbath, they could travel on Sunday, right? As soon it was, as it was Sunday, there were some disciples that did leave. There were two that were on their way out of Jerusalem to go where? Emmaus, exactly. And I wonder if that isn't why John and Peter were up so early in the morning. They were already up and, and uh, ready when Mary Magdalene came back to tell them, Somebody's stolen the Lord's body. Maybe they were waiting for all the women to come back from the tomb. They were all packed up and they were ready to head out and go back to Galilee on Sunday. So the only recorded event in the gospel records regarding Friday and Saturday of the Passion Week, the only thing we have in the scripture about those two days is that meeting with the Jewish high priests who were, remember, were Pharisees and, and the Pharisees, all right? The chief priests, the Sadducees, and a group of the Pharisees met with Pilate to ensure that Jesus' tomb was sealed. It was secure with cords and with seals. And then they also set a Roman guard in front of the tomb. However, now before we begin the events of Resurrection Sunday morning, I do want to call your attention to a space in your Bibles. It's an inspired space. What do you find between the end of Matthew 27 and the beginning of Matthew 28 in your Bibles? What do you find there between Matthew 27:66 and Matthew 28:1? What's there? Huh? A space? Is it a white space? Mine is about half an inch thick. But it does have something there. 
uninspired, chapter 28 is what it says. <laughs> but I want to tell you about that space. Maybe yours is not very much at all. Maybe it's just a little tiny bit. Some Bibles, you might have a bigger space. But there's a space not only here between Matthew 27 and 28, there's also a space between Mark 15 and Mark 16, Luke 23 and Luke 24, and John 19 and John 20. Why am I drawing your attention to a white space? Because that's a very important white space. <laughs> that white space represents the time when the Lord's body lay buried in its tomb. And other than the arrangement to secure that tomb, nothing else is recorded. However, we can use our sanctified imaginations about some things not recorded. For example, we can pretty much imagine that the guards, and I'm going to get back to that white space, okay? So keep looking at it. <laughs> the guards who were stationed at the tomb. We can just imagine that they surely were thinking that they had just been assigned one of the most boring and yet one of the easiest tasks of their entire military careers. What was their assignment? To watch over a dead man. Pretty boring, right? You'd think. Didn't turn out that way, did it? They likely stood... I don't know if they were required to stand at attention the whole time in front of the tomb or not, but maybe they could be more lax. Maybe they sat. Maybe they tossed dice. I don't know, just to make the time pass until the next change of guard came and then they could go home and their watch was over. Because they guarded a tomb during two Sabbaths, think about this. The only people passing anywhere nearby that tomb would have been what kind of people? Gentiles. The only ones who could walk around on the Sabbath would be Gentiles. They didn't observe the Jewish Sabbaths. And I don't think the Roman guard were too concerned that some Gentile would want to rob a Jewish grave. Do you? I don't think they were at all concerned about Gentiles. And most of those Gentiles would have been like them. They would have been probably Roman soldiers. I doubt um, that... If anyone Jewish was up and about, they wouldn't have been. They weren't allowed to walk around very far on the Sabbath. And if they were out in daylight, somebody would have said, what are you doing? You know, and they'd gotten in trouble. Um, plus, another strict thing is you don't go to a graveyard if you're Jewish, especially on a Sabbath. So if anyone Jewish was going to make, make an attempt to steal the body, it would likely be during the nighttime hours <clears throat> when no one would see them. Although I am pretty sure that these armed and hardened Roman soldiers were not too concerned about the possibility of facing a ragtag bunch of Galilean fishermen who had already proven themselves to be pretty faint-hearted when they had scattered like frightened sheep when their now dead leader was arrested. And if this was the thinking of the guards, they were right. If while Jesus was yet alive, they did not attempt to rescue him, perhaps while he was on his way down the Via della Rosa, that might have been a good time to try to uh, rescue him when there were a lot of other Jewish people who liked Jesus around and maybe they would have joined the disciples and uh, fought off. There was only 12 Roman soldiers involved in that crucifixion, right? Plus the centurion. That might have been the time they would try to, to um, rescue him, but they hadn't done that. So if they didn't try to rescue him while he was alive, they certainly weren't going to risk their lives uh, to get his corpse. And if they did come to the, to the tomb for the purpose of stealing his body, they would probably turn and run away the minute they saw that there was a Roman guard posted there. Because they didn't know there was a Roman guard. Did the women know there was a Roman guard posted there? No, because they stayed until, you know, the sun started to go down on Thursday. And there was no Roman guard then. The, the religious rulers met with Pilate early hours of Friday. So when they, women come back on Sunday, they're not expecting a Roman guard to be there. So obviously if the women don't know, the disciples don't know. And if they tried to sneak and get the body, they would have seen the Roman guards and they probably would have turned and run. 
The fact of the matter, however, is that the Lord's disciples were in too much emotional turmoil to even think of visiting the tomb at all. Do you notice they don't go with the women? The women do go, don't they? They go to the tomb with their spices. Why did none of the men accompany them there? Well, probably because they thought it would be dangerous for them to be out in public on Sunday. Now, Sunday they could move around. Maybe they were backpacking, you know, uh, but they, they didn't go because they were a bunch of basket cases. We find out in Mark 10, uh, 16, 10 that they're weeping and, and just in, in terrible shape. Isn't that, you know, funny? The men always think we're the emotional basket cases and the women are up and out and they're doing their thing, but the men are back crying. <laughs> so they weren't even, the, and the women's concern on their way to the tomb is who is going to roll away the stone for us. And so they had probably thought of that and asked the men, yet none of the men would help them. None of the men would accompany them. And you could say, well, it would be more dangerous for the men because they would be more likely to be arrested and crucified. Women didn't get crucified. But it was also dangerous for the women to come out early in the morning. Remember, millions of people in town. It was dangerous for women to come out before it was even light. So it was not just totally safe for the women. Anyhow, how did I get off on that? I don't know how I got off. But they, sh- they had no, no intention of visiting the tomb. They had surely thought that what, uh, that what had happened, when they learned from the women that two very wealthy and prominent religious men uh, had given the Lord a very respectful burial in a beautiful rich man's garden tomb, they would have thought that that was... God ordained. And why would they want to remove his body from such a wonderful, respectful place and put it somewhere else? They would have thought that that was God's providence. And that to them, that would have been like the one good thing that came out of the whole entire awful chain of events, that he was given such a proper burial. So why would they want to steal his body from that beautiful place? They could never find a place to match that. Now, as we discussed last week, the disciples were immensely dispirited. We do learn that they mourned and wept. Not one of them would ever have thought about suggesting to the others that they sneak out and that they make an attempt at stealing the body of their master from such an obviously beautiful place where he was placed to rest. Nor did any of them, you know, None of them suggested to the others that maybe, just maybe, he will do what he said and rise from the dead on the third day. So, yes, let's go with the women and see if he does indeed rise on the third day. Do you hear any of them suggesting that in that blank space there? No, we don't. What we do read later on is amazing. We learn that that they never even thought about what he had predicted regarding the third day resurrection. Talk about brain freeze. They never thought of it. It tells us in John 20, verse 9, that they didn't even remember his words about the third day resurrection. And the women only remembered it, his prediction, when the angel reminded them and said, he's not here, he has risen just as he said, oh, yeah, he did say that. And what do they do? The women run back and they tell the 11 apostles what the angels told them. Jesus is risen. The angels told us. His body's not there. He's risen just as he said. And you know what the amazing response of those 11 apostles is? They thought the women were telling them idle tales. And they did not believe them. Amazing. It is amazing. They weren't expecting a resurrection at all. And when they heard about it, they did not believe it. So, our educated speculation about what was going on in the earthly realm during the white space in our Bibles regarding the three days and the three nights that the Lord's body lay in the tomb is just what I shared with you about what maybe was going on in the minds of the Roman soldiers and also in the minds of the disciples. But have you ever wondered 
about what happened during those three days in the spiritual realm. I know you do. You have wondered about that because some of you have asked me about that. What was going on in the spiritual realm during the time his body lay in the tomb? Well, we do remember that he had promised the penitent thief that he himself would be with him that day in paradise, that day being Thursday. Sun, when the sun went down, it'd be Friday. So that day, Thursday, he would join him in paradise. Now, we have been looking at what took place with the Lord's body. He, His body was taken down from the cross, and it was washed, and it was wrapped, and it was spiced, heavily spiced. And then it was laid in a rich man's tomb, just as Isaiah 53, 9 had predicted 700 years earlier. However, that's what went on with his body. However, his soul went immediately into paradise. The moment he dismissed his spirit from him, from his body. His spirit, our spirits are life. That's life. God given life. When, when God breathed into Adam the spirit of life. When he dismissed his spirit, his life, his soul, went immediately into paradise, called, you know, Hades. But that only the section where unbelievers go is what we think of as Hades. The other section, which is divided from Hades by a great gulf, is known as paradise or Abraham's bosom. The Lord's soul went into paradise just as all Old Testament believers' souls immediately went into paradise. Up to the penitent thief. He was probably the last one that went into paradise, unless somebody died after him, you know, could have happened. But um, so, so the Lord's soul went, went right there to paradise. What we need to realize is that the Lord also had a human soul. At the time of his incarnation, Jesus, God, was made in the likeness of man. He was made in the likeness of man. What is our likeness? Well, we consist of body, soul, and spirit, don't we? Because we were made in the image of God. We're a triunity just as God is a triunity. He is three persons in one. Basically, we're three persons in one, body, soul, and spirit. So he, that means that he not only had a human body, he had a human soul. Okay? Now, he is spirit because he is life. But he had a human body. He had a human soul. Don't try to figure it all out. (laughs) The mystery of God becoming man, which is called, theologians call it, the hypostatic union. Him being 100% God and 100% man is something that none of us, at least in this lifetime, we can never fully comprehend it. Even if the scripture explained it to us in more detail, which it doesn't, it just gives us the facts. He is the God-man. It doesn't try to explain that to us. But even if it did, we probably would not have the kind of mental categories to even begin to understand the terminology that would have to be used. But we do know that the entirety of the Lord's humanity, not merely his fleshly body, but the entirety of his humanity was genuine. And therefore, that means he had a genuine human soul. And at his death, his soul went to paradise. And then, at some point in time, during the three days and three nights when his body lay in the tomb, that white space in your Bibles, Um, He led the great multitude of Old Testament saints, you know, that were in paradise, including the penitent thief. He led them out of paradise, their souls. Now, where were their bodies? Where are their bodies still? In the ground. Their bodies have not been resurrected yet. But he emptied the paradise section of Hades when he took all the Old Testament saints up to the penitent thief into the third heaven before a holy God. You see, before the time of his atonement, their sins had only 
been covered by the blood of bulls, goats, and, and lambs, but not cleansed, right? So they could not appear in the presence of holy God. But once he completed, it is finished, when he, once he completed the atonement, then they could be in God's presence. And if you don't understand this, we talked about this at length during our atonement, you know, it is finished messages. So get, get the CDs on that. But have you ever wondered about how or why Jesus said to Mary Magdalene outside the tomb in his resurrected glorified body, he told her, don't touch me. We'll get to that and explain it actually better. But he's really saying, don't cling to me um, because I have not yet ascended to my father in heaven. And have you ever thought, well, how can he say that to her when we know from it is in Ephesians 4, verses 8 and 9, that he led the Old Testament saints into heaven. Okay, that is in the New Testament. So how could he say to her he had not yet ascended when he took all those Old Testament souls into his father's presence and he had ascended? Well, here's your answer. It's re really rather simple. He ascended, his soul ascended to his father. His body hadn't resurrected yet. He hadn't ascended bodily into his father's presence. He would do that when? In Acts chapter 1, at the time of the ascension, he would resurrect bodily into his father's presence. So some things we wonder about are really rather simple, aren't they? Well, would you turn now, this is going to seem strange to you, but we're going to get into some really strange territory here. <laughs> But would you turn to 1 Peter? There is something else that we know the Lord Jesus did in his spirit while his body lay quietly in the tomb. Now, this is not in your books, okay? We're, we're going outside of the books here. I was going to skip all this, but Sharon, you came to me today. That's really weird. But I've had a lot of you ask me this question before. And I thought, mm, either we address it now or we don't address it. We need to address it now because this is chronologically where it took place. In that white space. While the Lord's body was in the tomb, what was he doing? What was he doing? You know he's always busy, right? Well, he was doing some things. And we learn at, at what he was doing um, in one place from Peter, not only from Ephesians, where he led captivity captive up into heaven, but the apostle Peter tells us some things in 1 Peter 3, look at verses 18 to 20, I'll read it in a minute. But how would Peter know these things? How would Peter know what the Lord Jesus did in spirit while his body was in the tomb? Jesus never taught him these things while he was alive. But you know that the Lord spent 40 days after his resurrection with his men. And you know he taught them a lot. We know he taught them a lot because a lot of it is revealed to us in the epistles in the New Testament. Now that they had light and they realized, oh, you did resurrect on the third day as you said. He could teach them so much more. And he packed in a lot of teaching in those 40 days. One of the things he told them was what he did in spirit during this three days and three nights. So let's look at 1 Peter 3, and I'm going to read verses 18 to 20. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirit, by which also... He went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing. Don't you like that? A-preparing. <laughs> Wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Well, in verse 18, Peter under divine inspiration, was contrasting the fact that although the Lord's flesh, his body, was dead, his internal, eternal spirit was alive. Now look at what his words are in verse 19. 
He's alive in the spirit by which also this refers to what took place with his living spirit while his body lay dead in the tomb. What did Jesus do in the spirit? What comes next? He went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Have you ever wondered what this meant? Have you? I know a lot of us have. We want to know what it means, don't we? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of confusion about what this means. Some even use it to teach that Jesus gives the lost a second chance. After all, he went down to the spirits in prison and he preached to them the gospel. So thus, this must mean that at least Old Testament unbelievers had a second chance to get saved. However, Scripture says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. No second chance. This is not at all what is happening here. How do we know? Well, first of all, we know from the Greek word that is translated into English as preached. It is the verb keruso, which actually refers to a proclamation of victory or a proclamation of triumph. It is not the Greek word that is used when someone preaches the truth about the gospel. It is not the word for preaching the gospel message. Do you know what that Greek word is? You don't think you do know it, but you do know it. If Jesus went and preached the gospel to spirits in prison, it would have been the word evangelizo. Evangelizo. What word do we get in English from that? Evangelize. But that's not the word that is used. It's caruso. It was a proclamation of victory. So he went to spirits in prison. By the way, if he went down there to proclaim to them the gospel, it would be a little bit ahead of time because he does, the gospel is not completed until the resurrection and he had not yet resurrected during these three days. So he went to spirits in prison to proclaim his victory in having completely atoned for the sins of man by his death and by his shed blood. He was announcing his victory over Satan and his demonic realm on the behalf of mankind. He's announcing his victory on the behalf of all men because all men have access to his atonement work. So then, the next thing we want to know is to whom did he make this victory proclamation? Who exactly were these spirits in prison? Do you want to know that? <laughs> okay, were they the spirits of dead Old Testament unbelievers in the Hades, part of Hades? Or were they the spirits of dead Old Testament believers did he preach to them while they were still in paradise before he took them up into the third heaven? Be kind of strange to call paradise prison, wouldn't it? But the answer is neither. He was not preaching to Old Testament unbelievers, nor was he preaching, not preaching, I shouldn't use that word, proclaiming his triumph to unbelievers or to believers. These were not human being spirits. Because if they had been, then the Greek word for spirits, when it says spirits in prison, the Greek word would have been, see if you recognize this, psychi, psychi, P-S-Y-C-H-E. That's the Greek word for a human soul. But that's not the word that was used. The word for spirit is pnevmasin, which speaks of spirit beings, those created beings who don't have a body and never had a body. So who were these spirits? They were, the, who were the spirits Jesus proclaimed his victory on the behalf of mankind to? 
during the three days and three nights that his body lay in the tomb. They were imprisoned, demonic spirits. Now that Jesus was dead and buried, Satan and his demonic realm must have been celebrating, having a real heyday party, thinking that they had been victorious. They had put him to death and he was in the tomb. But they would soon be profoundly and permanently disappointed, to say the least, when the living Christ appeared before them to announce his victory over sin and the wages of sin, which is death, on the behalf of humanity. Now, you might ask, well, why did he not proclaim that victory to Satan, who is loose yet to this day, and to all the other demons? Why to these in prison? We know that there's a lot of evil spirits in the atmospheric heavens of this world because he is the prince of the power of air, the air. Why didn't he announce it to them? Well, he rep- he announced this victory to a representative group of Satan's demonic realm who were a captive audience. They were in prison. They had no choice. Do you think Satan and the loose demonic world would sit there and listen to him proclaim his victory? No, but here he had a captive audience. These, these demons are imprisoned. They're in chains of darkness. And that's what we have to get into next. Those who he proclaimed his good news to, um, at least on the behalf of mankind, were spirits who because of their disobedience, it says, is that verse 20? Yeah, which sometime were disobedient. They were bound in the pit of the abyss called elsewhere Tartarus. And they were bound there since the time of who? Noah, since Noah's days. These were doubly fallen spirits. They fell in the beginning with Lucifer when he rebelled against God. And one-third of the holy angels rebelled with him and became fallen angels. Well, these particular fallen angels fell again by doing something terrible, just terrible, made God furious. These were the vilest and the most perverted of all the fallen angels. In Jude 6 and 7, Jude only has one chapter, so when you say 6 and 7, that's verses 6 and 7, we are told again about these fallen angels imprisoned. We are told by Jude that they kept not their first estate, but they left their own habitation. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means that they did not keep their own domain, their uh, their own estate, their habitation as non-sexual, unreproductive spirit beings. But they abandoned their proper abode in order to cohabitate with the daughters of men. And this takes you all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. I mean, you know, this is not made up. This is in God's word all the way from Genesis to Jude, which is the second to last book in the Bible. We are told, we are told about these terrible spirits. It, this was back in Genesis chapter 6. This was a deliberate attempt on the behalf of Satan's realm to hinder the redemptive purpose of God and prevent the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah, Genesis 3.15, from ever coming into this world and crushing Satan's head and then, at the time of judgment, casting Satan and all the fallen angels into the eternal lake of fire, which, by the way, the demonic world knows is coming. They know that that is their predicted end, that God has said that is where you will end up, is in the lake of fire. Now, they're doing everything they can, at least the free ones, to prevent that from happening. I don't know that they haven't learned yet that God always gets his way. 
but we know that they're picking up speed in our day. Evil men are getting waxing worse and worse, and Satan is alive and well, and he's, you know, in the end times, in the the days of the tribulation, he's going to possess the Antichrist and uh, really go to war against God and Christ. But but they know that God has said they're going to end up in the lake of fire. Do you remember when Jesus cast the demons out of the crude dude, the rude, crude dude in the nude, <laughs> the demoniac of Gadara? And those demons, of course, they knew who Jesus was. And they said, have you come early to cast us into the deep? Have you come early to torment us? And it wasn't the time, was it? So they begged him to cast them instead into the swine, and he did. And the swine have better sense than men because, you know, they they knew that they didn't want to be possessed by demons, so they committed suicide and jumped off the cliff. Men will go around possessed. I mean, if you don't believe in a spirit world, would you just get out there and look at this world? Oh, my goodness, we have. I think we have more people possessed. I have heard more cases of young people getting getting into witchcraft and Wicca and Wiccan and all this evil stuff that started with Harry Potter and then they go into the Twilight series. And I'm sorry if I'm stepping on your toes, but don't let your children and your grandchildren read that stuff. One thing leads to another and it is dangerous. It's dangerous. Demons are real. And they've always wanted to infiltrate the human race so that it would prevent Christ from coming. And once he came, they still are attempting to infiltrate the human race. And so, you know, have more people in the kingdom of darkness than in the kingdom of light and try to give Satan the victory. That's what it's all about. This is a spiritual warfare we're in. We're all soldiers. We're all at West Point here. This is our West Point right here. When God sent the flood, I want you to understand this. After, oh, long-suffering is a mild word for what God did. He was so patient. He gave people of that day repeated warnings about impending judgment, just as he does today. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. How many years? 120, while the ark was (laughs) a-preparing. Even more than that. He gave them more time than that because he also preached to the ungodly through Enoch. And he preached through Methuselah. Talk about long-suffering. 969 years that man lived. He lived longer than anyone has ever lived. That shows you the long-suffering of God with the world because Methuselah also preached impending judgment just by his name. Do you know what Methuselah means in Hebrew? When he dies, it will come. And when Methuselah died, the flood came that very year. So when God sent the flood and it was a worldwide flood, he did it to wash this world of the filth that had been created by the demonic infiltration of the people. He, Those who perished were depraved, demon-dominated people and their offspring, Nephilim. Read about it. Go back. Check me out. Read about it in Genesis chapter 6. The fallen spirits who participated in the evil were put in bonds under darkness where they have been ever since, and where they probably hope that one day they will be freed by Satan having victory. But that's not going to happen. The only time they're going to be freed is when they're taken out of that place and thrown into the lake of fire. Well, Peter spoke about this again. Go over to his second epistle, 2 Peter verse two, uh, chapter 2, and look at verses 4 and 5. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the godly, uh, the world of the ungodly. So he talks, talks about it twice. He learned these things from Jesus during Jesus's post-resurrection teaching. 
Jude 7 compares the sin of those angels to the sin of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you all know about the sin of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They gave themselves over to what? Fornication and homosexuality. And we are told in Jude 7 that they went after strange flesh. What does that mean? Well, remember Genesis 19? We went to Genesis 6. Now I'm talking about Genesis 19. What happened in Genesis 19? The perverted, lustful men of Sodom, homosexual men, lusted to have fornication with two holy angels who had come to visit Lot and to warn Lot to get out of Sodom that it was going to be destroyed. Do you remember that awful, perverted, sick scene when Lot offered the men his own daughters? Can't imagine. Just can't imagine that he was called a righteous man. But um, And, of course, they weren't interested in the girls. They wanted guys. And so when these two beautiful men showed up, they lusted after them. Of course, the holy angels would never consider such a thing, so they blinded them. And even still, what did those sodomite men do? In their blind condition, they're banging on Lot's door. Give him to us, give him to us. Talk about sick, awful. So Jude implies that in like manner as the sodomites, except the opposite situation, there were fallen angels who lusted after human women. They kept not their first estate. And unlike Sodomites, these fallen angels back in Genesis 6, I mean, yeah, Genesis 6, they had their way. They left their own habitations to go after strange flesh. And the Lord Jesus, in his spirit, proclaimed to that captive group of doubly fallen demons, he proclaimed his triumph over Satan and sin and death and hell to the most heinous demons, those who had disobeyed God in the worst manner in the days of Noah before the flood. Now, that was strange territory, wasn't it? Strange. But, you know, if you want to throw out the spiritual realm, you have to throw out most of your Bible. And guess what? Jesus believed in the spiritual realm. He not only talked about them, he proclaimed victory over them, and he talked to them. He talked to Satan in the wilderness, and he cast out many demons. Well, something else to mention concerning the the white space of the three days and three nights of the Lord's that the Lord's body spent in the heart of the earth is this. Do you know? Now, remember, this is the beginning of the feast of unleavened bread. What is unleavened bread? It has no it has no yeast in it. It has no, and, and yeast in the Bible symbolizes corruption. It has no evil influence in it. I also thought about this. You know, well, he's, his body is the bread of life, right? He is the, the true manna that came down from heaven. His body had no, his, he had no leaven, no influence of evil at all in his body, in him. It's laying in the tomb. Now, unleavened bread does not rise, does it? Because it has no yeast in it. And I thought, how ironic that this unleavened bread did rise. <laughs> it rose right out of the tomb. But do you know that while his body was in the tomb, it saw no corruption? It did not begin the decay process during those three days. Now, interestingly, the decay process doesn't start till after the third day. And Leviticus 7, 8 tells us something. I was just randomly reading a book I've never really hardly taken off my shelf, and I came across this, and I thought, oh, thank you for this little golden nugget. <laughs> but in Leviticus 7, 8, the law saw to it, uh, and it strictly, strictly ordered that anything not consumed of the peace offering 
Now, who was our peace offering? Who made peace possible between God and man? Jesus. The law in Leviticus 7, 8 strictly said that that which was not consumed of the peace offering was not to remain after the third day. It had to be burned. The third day, it was okay. It wouldn't corrupt up until the third day. But after the third day, it would putrefy. So it was strictly forbidden to keep any part of the peace offering after the third day. That's neat, isn't it? It's kind of like a prediction way back there about the Lord's third day resurrection. But I also have proof for what I'm saying about the fact that the Lord's body didn't corrupt from the Psalms. In Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10, David was writing, but we know he was not writing about himself, for we are told he wasn't by Peter and Paul in the New Testament. But David wrote in Psalm 16, My flesh also shall rest in hope, meaning that it would dwell confidently in death. My flesh will dwell confidently in death. And then it goes on and says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol. Now Sheol is another name for Hades. Of course, we know it would be speaking about the paradise section of Hades. Jesus is saying through David that he had confidence in in his body, not seeing corruption. I'll finish that in a minute. He also had confidence that his soul would not remain in paradise. And he stated it through David many years earlier. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol, neither will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's a dead giveaway that David wasn't talking about himself. He would never have called himself Holy One. So, that means that the body would not see corruption. And we could speculate and wonder if it even had remained after three days. You know, why did they know that Lazarus's body had begun to stink and to corrupt? Because now it was the fourth day, right? Um, but I wonder, and this is just speculation, if his body would ever have corrupted, not Lazarus's, Jesus's, because his body was completely sinless and he was born without the Adamic sin nature. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll read somebody that has a really good report on that and I'll reveal it to you. But the Apostle Peter took Psalm 16, what we just read, and uh, this was also likely taught to him from the resurrected Christ. And he used it as the foundational Old Testament text for telling the resurrection of the Messiah and that the Messiah's flesh rested in confident expectation. So I am not just saying that Psalm 16 is about the Lord Jesus. I have proof from Acts 2, verses 25 to 27, which shows us that this psalm was speaking about the Messiah. And then Paul also told us that Psalm 16 was talking about the Messiah and that his body would not see corruption. And that's in Acts 13, verses 35 to 37. So this is some of what was taking place in the white space between Matthew 27 and Matthew 28, and same with the other three Gospels. This is what we know about Friday and Saturday from both the earthly realm and also the spiritual realm during those two back-to-back Sabbaths. And now I promise you, <clears throat> I promise you that we are finished with Friday and Saturday. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, we just finished the Passion Week. That only took three, four years. <laughs> I don't know, I've lost track. But <clears throat> there's one day left, but it's not really the same week. It's the first day of a brand new week. And really, it's the first day of a brand new world. It's the first day of a brand new hope. It's the first day of a brand new covenant between God and man. It's Sunday, the day of resurrection. So now we get to our lesson for today. Matthew 28. <laughs> Let's look at Matthew 28, verses 1 and 2, really quickly. I'm doing worse than I did yesterday. Ah. <sighs> I know, it's unbelievable. 
Matthew 28, verses 1 and 2. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. I love that. And he sat upon it. I'm just, th- I just think he's sitting there. You know, the, we're, we're going to learn that the guards, the Roman guards, when they saw him, there was a second earthquake. They, they shook so bad inside. And it's the same word for earthquake. They had their own private individual earthquakes. And they shook so bad, these rough soldiers, that they fell over as dead. I mean, they fainted. I think that this angel hopped up on that stone and waved at him. <laughs> and then he's waiting for the women to come along and wave at them. Hi, ladies. You know, it's just, it's so cute that he sat there waiting. Um, but I, I also think it's hilarious because I think about the chief priests, okay, the chief priests are the ones who orchestrated that the tomb was sealed with the cords and the seals and the Roman guards, okay? Remember now, chief priests are Sadducees. And there are two main things they do not believe in. They don't believe in angels, and they don't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> so it's like the angel is rubbing it in, right? <laughs> because who do the soldiers run to to tell them, we just saw an angel, or whatever he was. And Jesus isn't there. He's gone. They go running to the chief priests. So no wonder those Sadducees are sad, you see. They're all upset. Oh, no. <laughs> they just disproved everything we believe against. Angels and resurrection. It's just hilarious. Anyhow, um, the most important event of the pre-resurrection, well, not really pre-resurrection events, post-resurrection events of Sunday is the announcement of his resurrection by an angelic being. I know, I just botched that up really bad. Okay, let me just explain. Before any of these events that we just read about, Jesus had already resurrected, okay? Before the angel even descends, before the earthquake, before the Roman soldiers keel over. All of that, all of that comes after Jesus resurrected first. I forgot to read you what Mark says. Go over to Mark, Mark 16. And I forgot to read you Luke, too. I got so excited about that angel hopping up on the stone. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mark 16. Let's see. I'm going to read verse, the first four verses here. It says, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and, Salo- uh, of James and Salome, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? That's all that was on their minds as they're going to the tomb. Who's going to roll away the stone for us? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. Now, uh, Luke, okay, Luke. When they got there, everything had already happened. The angel had come down. The stone had been rolled away. They didn't even know about the Roman guard. But by the time the women got there, the Roman soldiers were gone. All right, now let's look at Luke 24, verses 1 and 2. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they, the women, came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. That doesn't mean certain other spices, but certain other women came with them. And they found the sepulcher rolled away, I mean the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. All right. So, you can go back to Matthew or wherever you want to go, but the most important event that took place, all these uh, post-resurrection Sunday morning events, was the announcement of the Lord's resurrection by an angel. Now, I didn't read that. We're going to get to that next week, but you know he announced to the women, he's not here, he is risen. That's the most important event announced by an angel, and that really should not surprise us, that such an important event was announced by an angel. Shouldn't surprise us at all, should it? But boy, did it surprise those who were there. <laughs> like I said, the soldiers and the women, they were shocked. But it shouldn't surprise us because the announcement of the Lord's arrival to earth when he became the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, was announced by an angel, Luke 2.10. And his, <clears throat> his ascension, remember when he ascended up into heaven, there were two angels who said to the disciples, 
He's going to return in like manner. Now, when he returns for his bride, the church, his announcement is going to be heralded by an archangel with the, the sound of the trump of God. And we know when he returns at the time of his second coming in, in uh, Revelation 19, he's going to be coming with the armies of heaven, which will include his bride and also all the holy angels. So that doesn't really surprise us. God's holy angels are very, very happy participants in the work of the Lord Jesus in redeeming man. And they are very involved. They're excited to be involved. And are they involved during the days of the tribulation and the great tribulation? They're very involved. You read Revelation. There's angels all over the place. Well, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, all four Gospels um, present the Lord's numerous resurrection appearances. Do you know that we could not call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gospel accounts if it wasn't for their last chapters? Because what does the gospel consist of? Three parts. That he died, he was buried, and he was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. And we would not know that he was resurrected without their last chapters. In John, it's his last two chapters. And also in those chapters, we have the eyewitnesses. We have the account from four chosen witnesses who saw him resurrected. Um, Now, there is no doubt, as we're going to go through this account, especially on the early Sunday morning events, the women coming back and forth to the tomb and all that sort of thing, and the angels, there's no doubt, and we're going to straighten it all out, but when you just read through all four of them, you find that there are some slight differences in the Sunday morning accounts. But those differences are for purposes orchestrated by God. One of them, go ahead and read your books. Some of the critics, they just get carried away and they'll say, oh, well, look at this. These differ because one says that the woman, well, it was Mary Magdalene. She left before the sun was up. It was still dark. And other other accounts say that it was um, the, the dawning. And, and then at the tomb, it says the sun was in the sky. And, you know, oh, this is differences. This is, this is the errors in the Bible. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if you leave, we don't know where the women spent the night, do we? We don't, and I'm sure they weren't all together. They were in different places around the city. Mary might have stayed in Bethany with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. I don't know. But when she left, it was still dark. When she got to the tomb, guess what? The sun was up. Whoa, that was hard. (laughs) And uh, also, there's a spiritual reason for this. We've been in this study long enough to know that the Holy Spirit does things on purpose. He gives us four accounts and tells us, put them all together. And you're going to see a beautiful picture. When they left their homes, it was dark. They were gloomy, doomy, you know, they're going to a tomb to further anoint a dead man who they loved with all their hearts. It was dark in their souls and in their spirits, wasn't it? And by the time they got there, the sun was shining. They heard the best news ever, that he wasn't there, he had risen from the dead. That's a purposeful progression about the sun coming up. Don't you love Easter morning sunrise services? When the sun, you're looking and the sun comes up. Do you have those in your churches? And then the trumpets are playing. Mm. So we're going to find out that there are some differences, but they're purposeful. And we just don't know all the facts. You know, any lawyer will tell you that if you get a bunch of witnesses on a stand to all testify about the same event, they're going to have different perspectives on things. John hones in just on Mary Magdalene. That doesn't mean that the other accounts are wrong when she says that Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, were there, or the, the, the guy says it, Mark says it, or that Salome was with them, and that the other women came. So we don't know what happened. Maybe Mary started out alone, and when she was en route, Mary, the other Mary joined her somewhere. And maybe when they got to the tomb, Salome met them there. Salome, you would think, would be with her sister Mary, the mother of the Lord. So she maybe met them there. You see what I'm saying? Do you follow it? The fact is 
that because there are slight differences, this tells us it was written by God, the Holy Spirit. If it had been, if these accounts were written just by men, do you know what the men would have done? They would have gotten together and they would say, let's all give exactly the same report so that the critics won't say there are errors in our accounts. If the men had all had identical accounts, do you know what the critics would say? Collusion. Plagiarism. Oh, look, they're all identical. That never happens. So, they must have all copied Matthew. Matthew wrote it out first, and each one of them copied Matthew. So, you see, you can't win. You've got to believe the word of God is the word of God. No matter what he had done, the critics would have criticized it. But by the time we're finished looking at all of these events, you're going to be solid in knowing that Jesus did indeed resurrect from the dead. What we find in these last chapters of the gospel accounts is that every single verse of them is precious. Every single one is priceless. All of the various facts so briefly and so matter-of-factly stated are like nuggets of gold. And they should be, because our whole faith rests on these facts, these truths about the resurrection. So what am I saying? We're going to be taking our time. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. As we harmonize and as we synchronize the four accounts, and I think, I know, it's going to be worth it by the time we get to the end. We're going to be in the resurrection for a long time. Okay, and it's just so cool that it is resurrection season. I didn't finish. I got exactly to the same place I did with Monday, ladies, so that's good. Go ahead and do the homework questions that I gave you to do in your paper, and then we'll figure out what we're going to do. I think I'll just give you a break over resurrection holiday. Maybe you'll have one or two questions. That's all. All right, let's pray. Father God, may it always, always be our wisdom and our duty to set our affection on the Lord Jesus Christ and to see him continually having gone before us, preparing the way into your holy presence and removing the obstacles in our path, such as the great stone that the women didn't, you know, they they knew there was an obstacle and you removed it before they even got there. And you do that in our lives too. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. If we just step out in service to you, that you will make the path clear before us. Thank you that Jesus is our sure guide to eternal life because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And may our eyes ever be set on him. May all of our thoughts be captive to him. And may our hearts and our tongues ever rejoice in him. And it is our own lack of faith if they do not. Thank you, Lord, that in you we too can say, my flesh rests in hope. We as believers can cheerfully put off the body in a confident expectation of a joyful resurrection. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen.